The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. Uh, So today we're continuing our series on the attributes of God. And this morning, the attribute that we'll discuss is knowledge. But before we dive into God's knowledge, I'd like to take a moment and just discuss why we think it's important for us to understand these attributes of God. So the study of God is called theology. And when you look at a particular topic and you look at what the entire Bible teaches about that topic, that's called systematic theology. Now, you can study anything systematically, but the goal of systematic theology is not only that at the end you would know what the entire Bible teaches about that topic, but for us in this context that our love, affection, and faith for the Lord would grow. So as we look today at God's knowledge, that's my prayer, that your faith would be strengthened and that your affection for our Lord would be increased as we look at how he's revealed himself to us. So let's pray before we get started. Father in heaven, we praise you for who you are and for what you've done. Not only do you define the categories of goodness, love, mercy, grace, patience, holiness, peace, justice, knowledge, wisdom, and truth, but you are our good father who sacrificed much so that we could be called your children. Please grant us clarity and wisdom today as we consider your knowledge. May our affection and faith in you be strengthened by what we do over the next half hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first time I wrote that prayer, it said over the next hour, but I was dissuaded from that, so it's over the next half hour. Um, and, and so let me, give you, <laughs> let, let me give you a little roadmap for what we're going to do today. Uh, first, you're going to hear me possibly use the term omniscience in place of God's knowledge. Now, God is the only person whose knowledge can be described as omniscience, uh, but in some ways, I'll, I'll use both of them. So I just wanted to get that out of, out of the way because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch back and forth, maybe not on purpose sometimes. Secondly, I'm just going to tell you what we're going to do. First, we're going to define God's knowledge, and then we're going to look at some passages that give us that definition. Uh, and, and just like any other theory, uh, you really see it, you really understand it when it's applied to a real-life circumstance. So we're going to see how God's knowledge impacted the life of Job and how it impacts our lives today. So now you know where we're headed. Let's, let's dive in. Wayne Grudem defines God's knowledge as follows. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple eternal act. So if you're taking notes today, I'm going to read that again. That's really the only thing you have to write down. Uh, if, if you get that, then you've sort of got it. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible and one simple and eternal act. So we're just going to go down proposition by proposition and see what those things mean. Uh, and it, it may be a little dry. It may be a little academic at first, but I, I urge you to, to bear with me because there's, there's a payoff. This applies directly to our lives, but we need to understand it before we see that. So we'll just start right, right at the beginning. God fully knows himself. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 
So now is a good time to point out that knowledge is more than knowledge of facts or events. So it's certainly true that God knows everything that he's done in the past and he knows everything he's going to do in the future. But knowledge is more than that. In God's full knowledge of himself, he knows his character. He knows his desires. He knows his will. So for God's knowledge to be full, he has to know himself. So God fully knows himself. Let's move on. God fully knows all things actual. So what we're saying here is that God knows all things past, present, and future as they actually are. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 puts it this way. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done. So this is probably what you think of when you think of God's omniscience, his knowledge of things as they actually are. But let's remember that this is not just knowledge of facts. God knows emotions, desires, motivations, struggles, and successes for every human, institution, organism, and organization that has ever been or ever will be. So at this point, your brains may be shortened out a little bit. Uh, we can't comprehend such knowledge. As the psalmist says, and as Job says, these things are too wonderful for us. We can understand basic knowledge because we know things. There are a few things that we know, but the comprehensive nature of God's knowledge is very difficult for us to get into our heads. But if you come away from a study on the attributes of God with primarily just a sense of awe, then you're probably doing it right. So if you're comfortable with your brain shorting out a little bit, we'll go on to the next proposition. God fully knows all things potential. So in the book of Matthew, Jesus is rebuking two cities. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So God's rebuke here is to two primarily Hebrew cities. And he's saying, if I had done in front of these Gentiles in Tyre and Sidon, the things that I've done in front of you, they would have repented a long time ago. Now, there's certainly an application for us who have God's full scripture and mountains and mountains of books written to help us understand what those scriptures mean. What have we done with everything we've been given compared to those who've been given far less? And I'll let somebody else preach that sermon because we don't quite have time for it this morning. But it's certainly worth considering. But when Jesus says what Tyre and Sidon would have done, he's not guessing. He knows. Now, the ramifications of this type of knowledge are gigantic. We can infer from this and other scriptures that God not only knows things exactly as they are, but he knows exactly as they would be if circumstances had been different. So what if I had gone to a different college? What would my life look like? What would your look, life look like if you had married your high school sweetheart? What would our world look like if there had been term limits when FDR was president? God knows the exact perfect answer to all of these questions and to all the questions that we haven't thought to ask yet. As we think back to history, there's a seemingly infinite number of variables, and God perfectly knows what the world would be like where you change any number of them. So God knows all things potential. And lastly, this knowledge is in one simple and eternal act. Wayne Grudem defines it this way. 
This means that God is always fully aware of everything. If he should wish to tell us the number of grains of sand on the seashore or the number of stars in the sky, he would not have to count them all quickly like some kind of giant computer. Nor would he have to call the number to mind because it was something he had not thought about in a long time. Rather, he always knows all things at once. All these facts and all the other things that he knows are always fully present in his consciousness. He does not have to reason to conclusions or ponder carefully before he answers. For he knows the end from the beginning, and he never learns and never forgets anything. So like so many of the things that we've already talked about in our short time, this is difficult for us to wrap our minds around. We don't, we don't have supercomputers that can do this. And, and the older I get, the more difficult it is to consider someone who doesn't have to reason to a conclusion or ponder things carefully. So there you have it. There's the definition. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple eternal act. Now, maybe our brains have stretched a little bit this morning, but if you came in thinking that God's knowledge meant that he knows everything, you were right, and you'll leave feeling much the same way. Hopefully, there's a little bit better appreciation, though, for what everything means. Of course, as we said earlier, the real, uh, our, our real understanding of this is going to come as we see how it's applied to someone's life. Now, there are many scriptures that we could look at to see how God's knowledge impacts the world and impacts our lives. But to me, nothing is more clear than the story of Job. You'll see that God's knowledge is integral in helping us understand tragedy. And why I chose Job is because, frankly, I don't have the same tragedy or suffering that you have. I don't know what it's been like to sit in your shoes. And frankly, if I'm being honest, my life has been relatively easy. But there are few people in history whose tragedy can compare to the tragedy of Job. So as we look at Job, we'll see that, that as he has learned to honor God through his tragedy, there's much for us to learn as well. So let's get started. Job. So we'll cover all of it. And uh, I promise uh, to have you out uh, before Monday. So so the story goes that Job was a righteous man. Now, on top of being righteous, he was wealthy. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and numerous servants. Now, depending on which prosperity gospel website you're on, the, the value of those assets is somewhere between $5 million and $20 million in today's dollars. That's a lot of money to me. Um, now, on top of being righteous and being wealthy, Job also uh, was blessed with a large family. He had three daughters and seven sons. So... Uh, the Bible says that Job was the greatest man in the East. So our story continues. Satan approaches God. And God, feeling really good about Job, says, Well, have you considered my servant Job? He's a pretty good guy. And Satan says, Well, of course he is. He's got all of these things that you've blessed him with. He's got a beautiful family. If you take that away from him, he'll curse you to his face, to your face. So God says, we'll test that theory out. 
but, but leave his body alone. Job then gets word that two raiding parties and fire have destroyed his livestock. And while that message is being delivered, another messenger shows up and he says, Job, there was a mighty wind that blew across the land and all of your children were in a house eating together. That, that house has been wiped out and all of your children have been killed. So Job is gone in an instant from being the greatest man in the east to being a poor man who now has to bury his ten children. How does Job respond? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. How remarkable is that response? But Satan's not satisfied. Even though he's proven wrong on the first count, he decides to go double or nothing. He tells God, sure, Job still blesses your name. He's still got his health. God says, okay. You can attack his health, but make sure that you spare his life. Now, the result of this is loathsome sores. And I don't know how much you've had to eat this morning, so we won't go too deep into how loathsome these sores are. But it involves worms and maggots. We're not talking about minor blemishes. And so now we get to meet Job's super encouraging wife. And her advice to her husband is curse God and die. So how does Job respond? You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Remarkable. Would you have responded the way that Job responded? I can't say that I would have. If the story ended here, we would have learned a lot about how we are to deal with pain and suffering. But unfortunately, it doesn't. Next, we meet Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These are Job's friends, and they've come to him in his time of crisis. And to their credit, uh, for the first seven days, they just sit with Job in the ashes and mourn before they offer any advice. But they do offer advice. Now, this is chapters and chapters and chapters in the book of Job. So we're going to pull out what what I call a representative passage. It's sort of their argument to Job. They say, remember who that was innocent. This is Job 4, 7 through 9. Remember who that was innocent ever perished. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow in iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish. And by the blast of his anger... They are consumed. Come on, Job, you need to repent. Obviously, you've got some big hidden sin uh, that that you're hiding because, because righteous people don't suffer the way that you're suffering. Apparently, Job's friends watched a lot of TBN. But, but Job responded the way that I'm sure many of you would have, have already thought. That's not true. The righteous do suffer. Now, proverbially, it's right. Proverbs give us general wisdom, general guidance, that in general, this is true. But it's not absolutely true. There are righteous people who suffer. Not all suffering is the result of the sin of the person who's suffering. So Job is unable to give them some deep, dark, secret sin that he's committed that's caused this calamity to to fall on him. And his friends grow more and more angry that he won't repent. So 
be it persistent friends or persistent sores, we begin to see a crack in Job's armor. And we, as a group here, begin to see what this has to do with God's knowledge. In chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, Job says, Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, and that he would loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Elsewhere, we see that Job wants an audience with God. He wants to plead his case. And what is his case? That God has dealt unjustly with him. And that God should honor Job's request to kill him. Ultimately, Job argues that God and his judgments are arbitrary. And that there's no rhyme or reason to what he does. Are you starting to see it? Could the message summarize Job's argument as saying that God doesn't know what he's doing. Well, that may seem like a stretch now, but as we go and see how God responds to Job's criticism, you'll see that his knowledge, God's knowledge, is a central part of the rebuke that Job receives. But before God rebukes Job, we meet Elihu. Elihu's an interesting character. He's a young guy, so he's been watching Job and his friends talk, uh, and, and he's not quite sure if he's supposed to say anything because he's, he's just the young guy. But he sees the flaw in Job's friend's argument. But at the same time, he sees the danger in the way that Job has characterized God. He says in chapter 33, verses 8 through 14, Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean. There is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. So, Elihu says, Job, you've spoken out of turn. You've said things about God that are not true. It's interesting, Job doesn't argue with Elihu. And if you read to the end, uh, God rebukes Job's three friends, but he never rebukes Elihu. But alas, Elihu is just the warm-up. But let's recap. So Job has everything taken away from him, and yet he doesn't sin. But after being badgered by poor health and, and poor friends, he's begun to question God in a way that the Bible says is improper. Elihu called Job on it and rejected Job's assertion that God is arbitrary and capricious. But now God speaks for himself. This is Job 38, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? This is not central to what we're studying today, but if God ever tells you to dress for action like a man, say you're sorry and walk away. Uh, this, is, this is a bad spot that Job has found himself in. 
So how does God defend himself against this charge that he's arbitrary, that he's treated Job unfairly? He lists his resume. He tells Job all the things he knows, all the things he's done. He goes on for four chapters. The first half of chapter 38 deals with the earth. The second half of 38 deals with the heavens. The very end of 38 all the way through 40 deals with animals. And chapter 41 deals with the Leviathan. And Tracy would be glad to answer any questions you have about the Leviathan or the behemoth. But these are not just things that God has done. These are the things for which he cares and provides. Job's argument is that God is arbitrary and his treatment of Job is not right. And God's rebuttal is that Job doesn't know enough to stand in judgment of God. So how does Job respond? Chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And here he quotes God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And here he quotes God again. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job says that he uttered what he didn't understand. In essence, Job has drawn a conclusion about God based on the knowledge that he has. But God has said, Job, you don't have enough knowledge to draw that conclusion. Job's lost sight of the bigger picture. He's focused so intently on his own situation, and understandably so. We understand that. We can, we can sympathize with Job. But what he's lost sight of is the fact that God is loving, powerful, and knowledgeable. And that although the situation doesn't make sense to Job, God is working out his plan, not only in the midst of Job's suffering, but through Job's suffering. Can you see how this applies so directly to us? Now, we've all encountered disappointment or suffering or tragedy at some level. And if you haven't, prepare yourself. And the Princess Bride, he says, life is pain, highness. Uh, but I didn't know if I should quote that or not, but there it is. So, so how do we react when we encounter tragedy? What's the first question that we ask? Why? Why is this happening to me? And hear what I'm saying. There is nothing wrong with that question. It's a valid question. But we must be prepared for that question to go unanswered. Sometimes we'll know the answer. Sometimes we won't. Sometimes we'll learn the answer years and years later. We're never promised answers to all our questions on this side of heaven. Now, the second question we typically ask in the midst of tragedy and suffering is the same question that Jesus asked in the Garden of Gethsemane. Please let this cup pass from me. And again, there's nothing wrong with that response. Nothing wrong with that request, but we can't leave it there. We have to finish the same way that Jesus did. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So we see how God would have us respond in suffering. The question is how? 
How in the world do you keep all of these things in focus in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain? Well, I think there are a few practical things that we can do. First, surround yourself with a community that holds fast to Scripture, that will let the Bible be the authoritative voice in our lives, not our circumstances. Secondly, evaluate whether or not the things that you consume, be it news or entertainment, affirm or deny that we have a sovereign, loving, omniscient Father. Just a brief illustration on that that will be more uncomfortable for me this time because my parents are here in this service. So when we moved to Shreveport, we lived with mom and dad. Uh, she's already rolling her eyes. So, so we lived with them for, for a while, and, and we watched a lot of news. Now, we weren't, like, obsessed with it, but it was sort of just always on in the background. And uh, it, it didn't help that it was sort of in the midst of the 2012 election cycle. But what I found is that I was just so anxious and, and kind of depressed about the news cycle and about our world. Anyway, eventually we moved out, and I became exponentially happier. Um, now, I've intentionally omitted some jokes here about how not living with your parents can make you happy. And my mom is writing some right now about how not living with your son can make you happy. But when I took some time to think about what had changed about my disposition, it became obvious to me that when we moved, we didn't have cable. So I wasn't constantly berated with the idea that I needed to do something in order to be happy or I needed to own something in order to be happy. That's sort of the heart of marketing. You're incomplete. You need this. And unfortunately, marketing is increasingly the heart of our news and our entertainment. If you don't have the newest iPhone, you'll never be happy. Now, to be truly happy, you also need the Apple Watch and the HomeKit. Or this is our last shot. If this election doesn't go our way, our country is finished. No, don't get me wrong. How we interact with the world is important. We are citizens and we should uh, steward our votes and all of those things. And you can't eliminate advertising from your life any easier than you can eliminate potty breaks. You can't stop watching the news just because they're agended. I mean, you could and, and maybe you should. But we can evaluate everything that we take in in light of the scripture. When we're told that fulfillment comes from material things or election results, we should respond that the abundant life is found in Jesus Christ alone and nowhere else. Lastly and most importantly, we should be daily feeding ourselves the word of God. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your words in my heart so that I may not sin against you. When we're saturated with the word, we're better equipped to handle the difficulties that are sure to come our way. Paul is such an encouragement to me, particularly in this area. Now, this is a guy who had lost everything for the gospel. And this is what he says in Romans 8, 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is, not, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Can you identify with Paul here? Every little bit of bad news, every little physical ache, every injustice that we see, we groan. We long for God to make these things right. And C.S. Lewis would say that we all feel that. We all know, whether we trust in Christ or not, we know that something's wrong. Paul helps us to see our suffering in light of the big picture. Of course you're hurting. Of course you don't understand, but please don't forget how the story ends. He who did not spare his son from suffering loves you and understands exactly how you feel. And he is in the process of working to create something that's better than you could possibly imagine. In order for us to rest in the knowledge, power, and love of God, we must hide his word in our heart. And little by little, day by day, we trust him more and he equips us to glorify him in our suffering because we believe that he knows what he's doing. And now, typically, a preacher would have a good, hard poem that would just sort of slam the door. I couldn't find one, so we're going to watch a video, and then we'll finish up. was worth 
affliction momentary not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there but all of it is totally meaningful every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you've got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't, don't say, it's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart, but take these truths and day by day, focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach His Word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for.
2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are good, powerful, and knowledgeable. We know that you are in the process of building your kingdom and of eliminating evil, struggle, and pain. And you know that our proximity to those things makes it difficult for us to trust you in the midst of crisis. Our prayer is that you would give us faith that we need at the time that we need it. We pray with the father of the boy in Mark 9, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We pray not only that you would help us deal with our personal struggles, but that you would help us to be your instruments as those around us deal with crisis and tragedy. May we follow in the footsteps of Elihu and the Apostle Paul and help our brothers and sisters stand firm when they need it most. We know that these are big requests. But we know even more certainly that you are able. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.